This message was presented at the GYC 2012 conference in Seattle, Washington. For other resources like this, visit us online at www.gycweb.org. I'd like to invite you to bow your heads with me as we pray this evening. Our Father in heaven, we thank you that you have chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise, the weak things. And tonight, Father, we pray for your help. We pray for your Holy Spirit to be poured out upon us here tonight. We pray that Jesus would be seen, that Christ would be uplifted, that all of us would be drawn to the character of Jesus Christ, that we might become changed, transformed, reformed, that we would recognize that the world is changed by you changing me. So bless us here tonight. Send your Holy Spirit. For we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Tonight I'd like to invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians Actually, 2 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 22 through 27. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 22 through 27. I'll be reading from the New King James Version. You can follow along in whatever version you have. Paul here is listing some of the sufferings and some of the challenges that he's had in ministry. And he starts out in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 22, by saying, Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they the seed of Abraham? So am I. Are they ministers of Christ? I speak as a fool. I am more. In labors, more abundant. In stripes, above measure. In prisons, more frequently in deaths often. From the Jews, five times I've received 40 stripes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I have been in the deep, in journeys often, in perils of waters, in perils of robbers, in perils of my own countrymen, in perils of the Gentiles, in perils in the city, in perils in the wilderness, in perils in the sea, in perils among false brethren, in weariness and toil, in sleeplessness often, in hunger and thirst, 
in fastings often, in cold and nakedness. Paul is arguably the most influential apostle of the New Testament. He wrote 13 out of the 27 books of the New Testament. The majority of the second half of the book of Acts is devoted to Paul's missionary labors. If anyone embodied the spirit of revolution in the New Testament, it was the Apostle Paul. He lived revolution. If it was anyone that was possessed of the mission, the gospel commission to take the gospel to the world in his generation, it was Paul. He could write later with his own pen that the gospel had gone to every creature under heaven. Praise the Lord. The Apostle Paul was a revolutionary. It has been said that Paul's influence on Christian thinking arguably has been more significant than any other New Testament author. Yet we read here in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 22 and through 27, that this revolutionary apostle paid a high personal price. Let's not romanticize revolution here tonight. Revolution is always born in personal sacrifice. Not that there's any merit in sacrifice. Not that we're saved through sacrifice. But sacrifice is a result of being a follower of Jesus Christ. We'll touch more on that tomorrow night. Revolutions always come at great personal cost. It's easy to talk about and tough to live. And today in Christianity, there is presented a crossless Christ for a crossless Christian. Paul lived revolution. It's estimated that he traveled over 10,000 miles in the book of Acts on his missionary journeys. Over 4,000 of those miles probably on foot. Here was an individual that was motivated to take the gospel to the world, and as, as we have just read here tonight, the Apostle Paul whipped five times, beaten with rods three times, shipwrecked three times, robbed, beaten by Jews and Gentiles, sleepless nights, hunger, thirst, cold, nakedness, ultimately martyrdom. And here our question tonight as we begin our study in Scripture. What motivated the Apostle Paul? What drove him? What possessed an individual to ultimately give up his life for the sake of the cause of Christ? What was it in Paul's psyche and thinking that drove him, that propelled him, that compelled him to keep on moving? even though there was difficulty, odds beyond measure that we cannot even imagine. You remember in the book of Acts that John Mark came with Paul and Silas. He was a young adult, a young person, and he couldn't handle it. It was too difficult. The cost was too great, and he had to leave. 
that later became a subject of great contention between Paul and Silas. Paul wanted to give him a second chance. Silas actually wanted to give him a second chance, and Paul said no. Later on, he would recognize the ministry of John Mark, but Paul was an individual that was driven, that was compelled, that was motivated. What was it that drove the Apostle Paul to such lengths to give everything that he had to take the gospel to the world? I, as a minister of the gospel, have many times in my own personal reflection had to think about my motivations for service. And I'll be honest with you that in my own introspection, the deeper I go into my own soul, I recognize that there are many times selfish motivations. I find that it's possible to do the right things for the wrong reasons. And here we see an unprecedented individual that literally was instrumental by the grace of God in changing the landscape of Christianity and taking the gospel beyond the borders of Judaism to the entire world in his generation. What was it that drove the Apostle Paul to such lengths? What compelled him? What impelled him to take the gospel to the world regardless of the cost. What was the motivation in the book of Acts? With this question in mind, I'd like to invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 12, we're given insight into the mind of the Apostle Paul Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1, 2, and 3. Therefore, we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which so easily ensnares us, And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls. I'd like to spend a little bit of time in this passage, and it begins in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1, with the words, therefore. Now, whenever you're studying the Bible and you come across the word therefore, the word therefore is a concluding statement or concluding word. You have the premise, and then you have, therefore, one of my favorite subjects in school was geometry. I didn't care so much for algebra, but I loved geometry. And I remember doing these proofs. Some of you may remember that from from your high school days. And we would write down these proofs, and we would list the reasons, the premise. 
And then we would come down to the end, and there were those three dots. Therefore, conclusion. And here you have the word therefore. The word therefore, this is Paul's punchline. This is his point. This is his application of what he's trying to convey to the Hebrews. He says, therefore. So we have to go to what is before the word therefore. The chapter before Hebrews 12 is Hebrews chapter 11. There were no chapter divisions. These are here for our convenience. I'm not going to read through the entirety of Hebrews chapter 11, but I just want to highlight a few verses that have kind of stuck out at me. So let's go to Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1. I promise I won't read the entire chapter. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1, Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Verse 4, By faith Abel offered to God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained witness that he was righteous, God testifying to his gifts, and through it being dead still speaks. Verse 13, These all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off, were assured of them, embraced them, and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. For those who say such things declare plainly that they seek a homeland. And if truly they had called to mind that country from which they had come out, they would have had opportunity to return. But now they desire a better that is a heavenly country. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for He has prepared a city for them. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promise offered up his only begotten son, of whom it is said, In Isaac your seed shall be called, concluding that God was able to raise him up even from the dead, from which he also received him in a figurative sense. Verse 24, By faith Moses, when he became of age, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasure of sin. Verse 30, By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they were encircled for seven days. By faith, Harlot Rahab did not perish with those who did not believe them when she, said, when she had received the spies with peace. And what shall I more say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, of Barak, and Samson, and Jephthah, and of David, and Samuel the prophets, who through faith subdued kingdoms, worked righteousness, obtained promises, stopped the mouth of lions, quenched the violence of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, out of weakness were made strong, became valiant in battle, turned to flight the armies of the aliens. Women received their dead, raised to life again. Others were tortured, not accepting deliverance, that they might obtain a better resurrection. Still others had trial of mockings and scourgings, yes, and of chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. 
They were tempted. They were slain with the sword. They wandered in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, tormented, of whom the world was not worthy. These wandered in deserts and mountains, in caves of the earth, and these, having obtained a good testament through faith, did not receive the promise, God having provided something better for us, that they should not be made perfect apart from us, therefore. Paul is building a crescendo of his argument. He goes through the hall of faith, and then comes to his concluding remark in Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 1. It's an application. It goes from them to us. Therefore, we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. These witnesses are the individuals, the faithful that have gone before. The faithfulness of Abel, of Enoch, of Noah, of Abraham, of Jacob, of Joseph, of David, of Samuel, the faithful who have gone before. These are the witnesses. These are the individuals that have forged the trail and the path for us. He says, therefore, we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, the witnesses are the ones that we've read in the Hall of Faith in Hebrews chapter 11. Paul here is painting a picture. He's using a metaphor. We're surrounded by this proverbial cloud of individuals that have been faithful before us. And then he starts to make his application. Let us lay aside every weight and sin which so easily ensnares us. Secret sin. Cherished sins. Addictions. Habits. Things that perhaps no one else in the world knows, but the Lord does. Perhaps it's something that you've been struggling with your entire life. Perhaps you're a youth leader. Perhaps you're a GYC volunteer. Perhaps you're an elder in your church. Perhaps you're even a pastor. And this sin, this habit, this addiction has been plaguing you your entire life. And here the Apostle Paul says, we need to lay them aside. Because this thing is besetting us. It's weighing us down. It's keeping us back in our Christian experience. We're told in the book Steps to Christ that one sinful desire persistently cherished will eventually neutralize all the power of the gospel. One sinful desire persistently cherished will eventually neutralize all the power of the gospel. It's holding us back. You recognize that this cherished sin is keeping you back in your Christian experience, but I praise the Lord for His grace. I praise the Lord 
for his victory. I praise the Lord that in Steps of Christ, and I pray that if you have not read the book Steps of Christ, that you read it here tonight. The book Steps to Christ that says that the Lord would love to have us come to him just the way that we are. I praise the Lord that we can come to him just the way that we are, but he loves us too much to leave us in that condition. Amen? Amen. We're told in the book Steps to Christ that even repentance is a gift. Repentance is a sorrow for sin and a turning away from it. Repentance is a gift. Repentance is not a barrier to keep you away from Jesus. So many people think, I need to repent before I come to Jesus. But you can come to Jesus and say, Lord, I'm not even sorry. Help me to be sorry. Give me the gift of repentance. Hallelujah. Do for me what I'm incapable of doing for myself. Come to Him. And I pray tonight, if you have not accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, that you'll do that tonight. You can't beat that cherished sin by yourself. Jesus is our only hope. You can give God your will. Our promises are like ropes of sand. He can change your heart. He can change your affections. Therefore, we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which so easily ensnares us. Why do we need to take this off? Because here Paul uses his metaphor. He says, let us run. The reason why we need to lay aside every weight and sin that so easily besets us because he's using this metaphor of running. And, he re- and you recognize that when you're running, you need to lay off excess weight. You need to take these things off. Here Paul is grasping for a metaphor to describe the Christian experience. He's grasping for this metaphor, an aspect of the Christian experience that he's trying to convey, and he does not use in this instance the word walk. He doesn't say, let us stroll, let's saunter, let's plod, let's shuffle, let's crawl. Now, there are places in Scripture where the Christian experience is given the implication of a walk, but in this instance, Paul uses the metaphor of running. Now, for those of you that are here tonight, what is your emotional response when I say the word run? I'll be honest with you, I, when I think of physical running for fun, I don't have any positive feelings. I would have much preferred that Paul use the metaphor walk, because when I hear the word walk, David, let's go for a walk. I'm like, oh yeah, let's, let's go for a walk. We can, we can talk and do other things while we're walking. But when someone says, David, let's go for a run, 
I, I just don't feel warm things. And, and I wish that Paul would have used another metaphor. And here Paul is trying to convey something and, he, and he's grasping for a metaphor and he says, let us run with endurance. Let us run. He's trying to convey an aspect of the Christian experience. No, he did not say saunter, plod, or shuffle. He did not even say walk. He's trying to illustrate an aspect of Christianity and he uses the metaphor of running. Paul did not end there. I wish he would have stopped, but he goes on and he says, let us run with endurance. In other words, this run is not a hundred-yard dash. It's not like you run 10 feet and you're like, I'm done. It's not a thousand meters. It's not even a mile. Here Paul uses the word run with endurance. In other words, this is a race at which some point you're going to be tempted to quit. It's going to be a challenging race. It's going to be difficult. Matter of fact, it's even going to get to the place where you're going to be tempted to stop. And there are many people that have begun the Christian experience. They've begun with enthusiasm, but they haven't started what they finish. They've dropped out. Here in Galatians, the Apostle Paul makes a comment, and he says, You are running the race so well. Who has held you back from following the truth? There's going to be people that start the race and yet do not finish the race. Paul, in Hebrews chapter 12, uses a metaphor of endurance running to describe the Christian experience. Recently, I started reading a book on endurance running. It's called Ultra Marathons. You ever read about some of these individuals? It's really quite fascinating because it's gotten to the place where running a marathon, 26.2 miles, is not enough, and they call themselves ultra-endurance runners. There's one race I read about. It's called the Leadville 100. They started the race to boost the economic activity of a town in Leadville. It's the Leadville 100 because it's 100 miles. It's 15,600 feet of climbing and descent. They say it's like running four marathons back to back with a sock in your mouth because of the elevation. And the record for running this race is 15 hours and 42 minutes. Non-stop. Less than half of the runners that start the race finish the race. The individuals that do this are machines. Just 
super human. I, I want to meet one of them. I just can't imagine running a hundred miles for fun, much less paying to do so. And there was a gentleman I read about, his name, name is Dean Carnazes. I'm not sure if I'm saying that right. He is an ultra marathon champion. He ran 350 miles nonstop. It took him 80 hours and 44 minutes. He did this in 2005. He ran 50 marathons in 50 states in 50 consecutive days in 2006. And then in 2007, he swam across the San Francisco Bay, and this was his warm up. Before he ran 3,000 miles across the United States from California to New York City in 75 days, running 40 to 50 miles per day. This man is, I don't know if there's an English word to describe him, incredible. And I had to ask myself when I was reading about these phenomenal athletes. And there was one question that always would come up why would anyone want to do that? <laughs> uh, these people are motivated by something that is beyond me to do that for fun. You have to be careful what you read. You really have to be careful. What you read because a few months later, I signed up for a marathon. <laughs> It's amazing how it goes from here, and then you start signing up for things that you never thought would sign up. And my, my logic went something like this perhaps I was going through a crisis. I, I think I kind of was. I reached a point, you know, and I was like, oh, what, what other mountain is there to climb? And I said, oh, a marathon. And I said, surely if Dean Carnazes can run 350 miles nonstop, I can run 26. Piece of cake. 350, 26, come on. And so I did start training. I didn't realize till later that the average individual, like myself, Can only hold a certain amount of glycogen in our tank, a certain amount of sugar, and we only can hold about 18 to 20 miles worth of glycogen. And then the last six miles, you just run on fumes. <laughs> and last year, I ran the Detroit Marathon. I don't know what possessed me, but I'm there at the start line. And it's interesting how the psychology of this thing goes, because in the beginning, everyone's smiling and. High fiving, we got this, this is going to be great. And you know, you're all pumped up, marathon, yes, this is wonderful. There's like thousands of people, and you're running on adrenaline. And the first 13 miles, it, it's, it's wonderful. I remember going over the Ambassador Bridge, and, and I was just flying. I, I was passing people, and I looked down at my pace, and I said, Oh, I am on set for. A PR, a personal record. <laughs> and I, I'm passing people, and 
and I was next to an individual, and he told me his marathon time, and two hours and 30 minutes, and I was like, wow, this is, this is wonderful. <laughs> he was staying back with the rest of us, but I would notice that at certain times he would surge, and so I would surge with him. <laughs> Mile 13, 14, 15, 16, 17. And I don't know if excruciating describes what I was feeling. <laughs> I, I literally thought, because of the amount of pain I was experiencing, I was going to lose my mind. <laughs> I, I'm not exaggerating. I, I've never been in so much pain before because what I had done, it was a cool day and so I was skipping water stations like an intelligent individual. And by mile 17, I was absolutely dehydrated, my, burned out all my electrolytes. And the thought entered my fuzzy consciousness, why am I doing this? Why did I pay $120 to do this? And I'll never forget it, I'm running Mile 20, and these people, these women are cheering, six more miles, and I'm just thinking. <laughs> I, I don't think this is going to be a reality. I honestly thought I was not going to finish. And somehow, in the midst of that foggy agony, because that's what it was, I focused on the finish line. Some of you may not think that's a very motivating thing, but for some reason it was. I focused on the finish line. And everything within my being, I just surged and, and ran and ran and ran and ran and I thought that I was literally at one point, I remember in another marathon that I ran that about 300 yards from the finish line there was a guy that was about to fall backwards and they had to catch him and that's the way I felt. I, I was running and running and running and finally I crossed the finish lines and I'm not exaggerating, I crossed the finish line and the guy with the medal was like from here to the front row. He had the medal, and he said, come on. <laughs> and I said, okay, and, and my legs had frozen. And he said, come on, and I said, I can't. <laughs> and he said, you mean to tell me you've gone 26 miles, you can't come 10 feet? I said, no. <laughs> and I literally waddled over to him. He put the metal on my neck. My wife came to me and I said, I'm never doing that again. <laughs> Hebrews chapter 12 has absolutely new meaning to me now. <laughs> Paul relates the Christian experience to an endurance run. 
And he says that the present agony is made easier by where your focus lies. Let me read that again. The present agony is made easier dependent on where your focus lies. The Bible tells us in Genesis chapter 29, verse 20, so Jacob served seven years to get Rachel. Seven years is a long time. He actually had to work 14. But they seemed, notice this next part. Now this is true love. But they seemed only a few days because of his love for her. The present agony is made easier by where your focus lies. The more profound the focus point, the more profound our motivation. Let's go back to Hebrews chapter 12. Therefore we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto whom? Looking unto whom? Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before us endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus says that we should look to Jesus. Jesus is our motivation. Someone say amen. Amen. Jesus is who drives us. Jesus is who propels us forward. Jesus is the individual that motivated the book of Acts and motivates every Christian to take the gospel to the world. Focus on Jesus, and He enables you to be carried through. The Apostle Paul goes on, looking unto Jesus. What should we focus on? The author and the finisher of our faith, the God that started will finish it. Amen. Amen. Who for the joy that was set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. We're told to focus on the way that Jesus endured. I want to read this from the Desire of Ages. The awful moment had come, the moment which was to decide the destiny of the world. The fate of humanity trembled in the balance. Christ might even now refuse to drink the cup, a portion to guilty man. This is in Gethsemane. It was not yet too late. He might wipe away the bloody sweat from his brow and leave man to perish in his iniquity. He might say, let the transgressor receive the penalty of his sin. I will go back to his father. Jesus in Gethsemane could have walked away and he would have owed us nothing. He could have gone right back to heaven. The weight of sin and guilt was crushing his very soul. The sinless one was becoming the sin-bearer. And his nature recoiled from Gethsemane. She goes on. The words fall trembling from the pale lips of Jesus. Oh, my Father, 
If this cup may not pass away from me except I drink it, thy will be done. Three times he uttered that prayer. Three times has humanity shrunk from the last crowning sacrifice. The reality is, Jesus wanted to quit. He asked not once, not twice, but three times, Father, do I have to drink this cup? He was going through the agony of Gethsemane, and it got to the place where heaven could no longer take it, and an angel had to be sent. Take this cup away. The words fall trembling from the pale lips of Christ. But now, the history of the human race comes up before the world's Redeemer. He sees that the transgressors of the law, if left to themselves, must perish. His decision is made. He will save man at any cost to himself. What kept Jesus going in Gethsemane? He's going through agony. He wants to go back to heaven, wipe the sweat from his brow. He doesn't want to be the sin bearer. It's crushing the life of his very soul. He's experiencing separation from God. And then he thinks of you. Amen. He thinks of me. David Shin. And he says, I'll do it. Praise the Lord. We're told that heaven is not a place to be desired for Christ with the thought that we would not be there. He endured Gethsemane and his motivation was you. He thought of you. Not a collective, faceless group of individuals, but you sitting in that chair, the individual. We're told so many times that Christ would have come for one, but he came literally for you and in Gethsemane even when he wanted to walk away what compelled him what motivated him forward was you and Paul is saying in Hebrews chapter 12 focus on the Christ that focused on you amen focus on the Christ that focused on you. I want to make appeal tonight. If it's your desire tonight to say in your heart of hearts, Lord, I want to see Jesus. Help me to keep my eyes focused on the Christ that focused on me. 
Help me to keep my eyes focused on Jesus. Let Jesus be my motivation for service because everything else is selfishness. Help Jesus be the reason why we go door to door. Have Jesus be the reason why we do everything. And if that's your desire tonight, I want to invite you to stand with me. Saying, Lord, help me because I can't help myself. Help me to keep my eyes fixed on Jesus. Help Jesus to be the reason and the motivation for service. Help Jesus to be everything that drives me forward to take the gospel to the world in this generation. Tonight, I can't close this with an opportunity to give you to respond. If there's someone here tonight that hasn't fully surrendered their life to Jesus Christ, if there's someone here tonight that Perhaps you've given 50%. Perhaps you've given 90%. Perhaps you've even given 99%. But you know in your heart of hearts that there's an aspect of your heart that you haven't fully laid on the altar. And tonight, you want to say, Jesus, take my heart because I can't give it. I want to lay myself unreservedly on the altar of sacrifice for you because of what you have done for me. 100%. I want to invite you to come forward. There's no merit in coming forward. Coming forward is a physical response that solidifies a spiritual decision. Amen. So I want to invite you to come forward tonight. You have not made a full surrender to Jesus Christ, but, but you want to. You haven't given 100%. Someone here is being called to the mission field, and you're struggling. And you want to say, Lord, I'll go where you want me to go. I'll be what you want me to be. Someone here tonight is putting the opinions of their boyfriend or girlfriend above Jesus Christ. And you want to say, Lord, I want to place you first in my life. I want to invite you to forward tonight. Someone here tonight is experiencing challenges with stewardship. And God is calling you to be faithful stewards. And you want to lay that on the altar. I want to invite you to forward tonight. You want to lay yourself 100% on the altar and say, Lord, take my heart because I can't give it. Do for me what I'm incapable of doing for myself. Please give me the gift of repentance. Father, help us. Father, reveal Jesus to us. Father, may Jesus be the motivation. There's nothing more that Jesus could have done that he, than he did at Calvary. All of heaven was poured out in that gift of Jesus Christ. And that's why we're here, friends. That's why we exist as GYC. That's why we go door to door. That's why we sacrifice our Christmas vacation. It's because of Jesus. I want to invite you to bow your heads with me as we pray. Oh, Father in heaven, Lord, I wish that I had the tongue of an angel that I could convey how much you love us. Oh, that I had the language of Canaan that I could deliver 
a message worthy of your love. We're thankful that you make up the difference. And Father, tonight, your people have stood saying, Lord, we want Jesus to be our motivation. We want Jesus to be the individual that drives us, that motivates us, that no matter the challenges, it brings us forward. Lord, some have come forward tonight saying, I want to give everything. There's something that I've been keeping from the altar and I want to lay it down. I pray for them tonight. I pray that you would do for the individuals. Give them the gift of repentance. Give them your spirit. Give them your robe of righteousness. Cover them and we pray that you would work in them both to will and to do of your good pleasure. Take our hearts because we cannot give them. For we ask these things in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. This message was recorded by Fountain View Productions for GYC. GYC, a supporting ministry of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, seeks to inspire and equip young people to be vibrant, Bible-based, and Christ-centered Christians. To download or purchase other resources, visit us online at gycweb.org.